We had students out on the front lines and then in North Minneapolis dealing with the type of elements that were coming in to the community. A lot of families were faced with, honestly, some kind of terrorism. I mean, I think typically in curriculum, we have like one story that defines a whole group of people. Um, so we really do have to introduce multiple narratives and voices into the curriculum. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. I work in the Los Angeles area. This will be my 17th year in the classroom, although not literally in the classroom since my area has some sense and we're starting the school year off fully online, but that's neither here nor there. This is All of the Above, your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. We are two lifelong educators who know, like you know, that education simply doesn't get the attention that it deserves. So we are here to help you process all that's going on with our schools today. If you are new to our show, if this is your first time listening or watching us, we want to extend a super dope, super warm welcome to you. We hope you enjoy what you see. If so, do consider hitting that subscribe button or that that uh, thumbs up or, or whatever might be there on whatever app you're watching this or listening to this on. And um, yeah, so Jeff, man, there's a lot going on in the world of education right now. We have a fully packed agenda, I'm sure. Can you uh, break it down for us? What, what are we going to learn today? Well, I'd be happy to, Manuel. We got a good one, as usual, for folks. And, uh, you know, there's a topic in the world that I feel like is permeating every aspect of our of our national discussion about education right now. And that's the the term, the work of anti-racism. Right. And, and it seems like everybody and their mom is out there, you know, buying a copy of this and that book attending a, you know, an online seminar, trying, uh, and, and hopefully this is a good sign for us as a nation, trying to figure out how can we make our schools uh, an anti-racist institution. And so we have two incredible guests coming on today who are gonna help us explore that through the lens of the outstanding work they've been doing at their school site uh, in Minneapolis. Minneapolis being, of course, the, the kind of epicenter of our national uprising around police violence and anti-black racism more generally. So we have two guests. We have Alex Leonard, we have Ariel Roca, who work at the Community Connected Academy, uh, which is a academy within Patrick Henry, Patrick Henry High School uh, in Minneapolis. So we're going to talk about doing anti-racist work and what this looks like at their school. Uh, it's going to be dope, man. You definitely don't want to miss it. Man, I love the name, Community Connected Academy. That alone, yeah. like that's already transformative when you think about the names of so many other academies out there. Community Connected, can't go wrong by connecting with the community, but uh, definitely looking forward to hearing more from them about their, their work and their, their school there for sure. But up first, we have the do now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. AOTA family, we can really use your support. We're looking at the ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, and we have a good amount of ratings, but we need some more reviews. So if you open up the Apple Podcasts app and pull up our show and scroll down to the bottom, Leave us five stars and write a short review for us. We will send you back a AOTA show sticker for your laptop or for wherever you put your, your, your stickers. So send us a screenshot of your review and we'll send you back an AOTA show sticker. You can send that screenshot to our, our Gmail, allaboveshow at gmail.com or just DM us on Facebook or Twitter. Thank you. All right, folks, we're back, and now it's time for the Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, you know, it is, uh, I think, a topic that's on everyone's mind, um, which is engaging students and families. We've, we haven't seen them since March, Manuel, so we got to take attendance. we got to roll call today. we got to see who's here. That is true. That is true. In this distance learning era, attendance has been a whole thing in terms of how different districts are trying to measure it and all that. But yeah, let's do let's do a roll call, Jeff. Um, first up on our attendance sheet is um, the black and brown kids. 
Oh, man. See, I should have known coming from you. Everything's got to be about race, man. Well, it's mad, mad racial. Mad racial. I mean, obviously, the more we talk about it, the more it's it's a problem in our society. If we just That's stop right. talking you, about it, we racist. can move on. Yeah, exactly. But unfortunately, we can't just move on because race is still a very, very real thing here in these United States of America. And this first story has to do with student engagement during distance learning back in the spring. This first story comes from the LA Times by some good reporting by Paloma Esquivel and Howard Bloom. And they report that more than 50,000 Black and Latinx middle and high school students in Los Angeles did not regularly participate in distance learning when schools closed last spring. These numbers come via a report by the LA uh, Unified School District's Independent Analysis Unit, which looked at the activity of middle and high school students within the Schoology Learning Platform. This is the district's central learning, central learning management system where digital student engagement, including Zoom sessions, is housed. And the report looked at activity from March 16th through May 22nd. According to the report, some students simply logged in and did little else. Others only viewed their work, and those whom the report described as quote-unquote participating were students who submitted work, took tests, posted on discussion boards, or created some sort of messages within the platform. And nearly every category of students, by race, income, learning needs, had large numbers who didn't regularly participate in distance learning. But low-income students and Black and Latinx students showed partition participation rates between 10 to 20 percentage points lower than their white and Asian peers. Specifically among Latinx and black students, the peak weekly participation rate was about 67% for middle school students and between 71 to 73% participation rate for high school students. White students' weekly participation peaked at 88% for middle school students and 85% for high school students. And among Asian American students, it was around 90%. The report also found that on any given day, an average of about 36% of middle and high school students participated online. About 25% logged on or viewed work and about 40% were completely absent on any given day. Jeff, what do you make of these numbers? Well, you know, what can you make of these numbers, right? Like they're disappointing, they're, you know, unacceptable as we move forward uh, with, with resuming school this fall. And they're also not at all surprising, right? Um, I do want to give some credit to, uh, to the district, to the Los Angeles Unified School District for one, you know, gathering data, sharing the data publicly, um, you know, I think in, in unprecedented circumstances, right, uh, where we just were not prepared to have to completely reinvent school and do it online. Um, you know, what, what was revealed before us was, you know, even more granular detail about the extent to which our society creates very inequitable uh, living situations for people that then will f only further exacerbate inequities when we're talking about having learning taking place from home rather than at least some you know, assumed general common starting place of, of being at the school building. So, uh, so I think, you know, the data kind of speaks for itself, right? Like the fact that on a, you know, on a good day, 20% of kids were not participating is concerning. Um, you know, the gaps that exist here, I think, are, are predictable. They're the kind of gaps that we see uh, in every aspect of our society that have to do with poverty, that have to do with structural racism, that have to do with, in this particular case, the fact that we live in, a, in just a really backward society when it comes to thinking about high-speed access to high-speed internet, right? Um, in this day and age, if the pandemic has taught us nothing else, it's that quality internet access is actually not much different in terms of the extent to which everyone needs it than say water or electricity or gas or you know the basic utilities everyone has in their home right and so you know we need to start thinking i think the data tells us we need to start thinking differently about supporting families because we are although i think going to be better positioned this fall than we were in, you know certainly kind of caught with our pants down in march um, but the 
reality is we need families to have the resources and infrastructure they need at home in order for there to be a quality learning environment at home. And so far we've seen limited and quite frankly inadequate investments from you know the telecommunications companies and from government and from philanthropy to like put band-aids on the problem but it's not enough and it's certainly not going to be enough if we you know knowing that we're starting virtually in the fall and frankly we might be in that situation for the entire school year and maybe another school year to come after that until we actually have a vaccine so a um, lot of stuff there, Manuel. What uh, what do you think? Yeah, definitely a lot of stuff and definitely, uh, to your point, not surprising. And actually, that reminds me of the discussion we had um, some time ago about standardized. I, it might have been the last full episode. I don't know about standardized testing and whether or not that's going to um, fade away during this pandemic. And you made the point that it's a very important tool for us to help measure the, you know, the areas where we're definitely failing our, our black and brown kids. And I said something about like, you know, do we really need the tests to know that we're not serving our black and brown kids correctly? And this is one of those reports where I didn't need to even read the details um, before knowing that here's yet another gap. And in this case, black and brown students for one reason or another, not engaging to the same level in this distance learning experiment as, as, white, as their white and Asian peers. And I think, Holistically, that speaks to just in general, um, obviously, the marginalization within um, our society and just the school system not being built in such a way that our most uh, marginalized families can access it, especially in the distance learning context. Because a lot of these uh, students who weren't engaging, a lot of them across Los Angeles became sudden babysitters and caretakers and essential workers for sure. And the LA Unified Report doesn't go into why students didn't engage, but the LA Times article does talk to teachers about their observations around engagement. And um, one thing that was said that I wanna definitely touch on right now, because I know somebody watching this or listening to this is thinking, oh, they didn't engage because they found out that their grades can't go down. In the report, some teachers are, uh, speak about even their high achieving students in AP classes. And, and one student in particular who was on track to be valedictorian um, just stopped engaging after a couple weeks. and. If those students stopped engaging because of their grades, I think that itself is a mark of humongous failure in our school system to help students see the value in their learning beyond just doing it for the grade. So if it's true that certain students disengage because their grade can go any lower during distance learning per the district's policy, then that's that's a mark of failure on all of us teachers for failing to help students see the value in what, or failing to provide value in our instruction to students beyond just like do it for the grade. And one thing that wasn't mentioned in the story, but that I've thought about quite a bit in just thinking about what students I didn't hear from as distance learning went on, was just the amount of actual mental fatigue among students dealing with this pandemic and dealing with the economic crisis and their family members being laid off and all the challenges around that, I think it was much more and continues to be much more difficult on students' social, emotional, uh, mental well-being than we are talking about. And I think that's a really, really big uh, factor in this distance learning uh, pandemic experience that we're not really talking about. Just the the, the struggle that students, certain students have had just to like get up each day and even care about schoolwork and engage in it, given all that's going on in the world. I think that's a, a under spoken, underspoken about. I just made something up. I think that's a underappreciated that's, and that's, that's overlooked. That's a good word. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do here. We just make up words, man. Just throw some stuff together. It works that's out. Right. And people right. know what I'm trying to say. In any case, we need to talk about that more and explore that a, a lot more because um, we have another semester perhaps it looks like, of distance learning. And we can't let this continue, this gap between uh, students engaging and students who are not. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would just throw in one more thing, Manuel, because I, I appreciate what you said there. And I, I think the problem is actually even a little bit worse than you're, than you're naming from the standpoint of the intersecting uh, nature of race, poverty, housing, geography, healthcare pandemic, right? Yeah. Um, and, and then you layer on top of that, like the environmental 
uh, racism and inequities we have in our society. So right here in LA, Manuel, we have communities. So that, you know, the, the LA Times piece is giving us district-wide data, right. right? So we have, you know, X percent of students who just didn't engage, right? We know for a fact that that percent is not like, well, every school had 20% of kids who just never engaged, right? We know that there were there are communities in, within the city of Los Angeles, right? There are neighborhoods that essentially are like Wi-Fi service dead zones, right? where very few of the service providers actually provide service. Which is crazy. This is Los Angeles. This is like a right. giant city. That's crazy that any corner right. One of the, the city would cities struggle in the with Wi-Fi. Right? right. And so the providers who do provide access stepped in and they gave all these like temporary short-term plans, all 60 days of free service and this and that, right? Um, you 20 gigs of data. But you know if kids are Zooming, if you have multiple kids Zooming all day, 20 gigs of data will get you through maybe a week of school, right? right? So there's, there's all kinds of things that created barriers, right? Because of poor infrastructure, right? And then these are the same communities that have a higher percentage of parents who are considered essential workers, who have to go to work, who are put at higher risk of contracting COVID, who have the least quality access to healthcare, who are breathing the dirtiest air in our very dirty air city. Yep. Right. So so like you layer all this stuff on top of one another. And, and what what this data, which is, you know, important, and I'm glad they wrote this article and I'm glad the district's collecting it. Right. But this is kind of an academic exercise that is just surfacing the ways in which the inequality and, and racism that's baked into how we do everything yep. here is is so deep. Right. <laughs> it manifests in every aspect um, of our life. And this is just, you know, showing us one slice of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for those of y'all that are learning about systemic racism, this is this is what it looks like. These black and brown kids who aren't engaging in this report, it's not because they individually, you know, don't care about their future outlooks or anything. They care about their their future and their livelihood just as much as every student. But as Jeff just explained, the the piling on of all these different systems and all these different inequities, man, it's a wonder sometimes. It's a wonder that any any kid gets through that. Man, that's a not a very, very uplifting story. Can we get something uplifting here? <laughs> Probably not. Uh, just, just keeping it real with you, Manuel. Uh, <laughs> but uh, okay, so our next story here uh, is uh, is an interesting one, Manuel. I'm, I am very intrigued to get your uh, reaction to this story in particular. So uh, next up on our roll call, Manuel, is the U.S. Army. U.S. Army. I struggle to see how this could be an uplifting story, Jeff. <laughs> so do I. So do I. Uh, <laughs> but let's get into it nonetheless. So uh, this story comes to us actually from kind of an amalgamation of good reporting across a few publications. So we have uh, Jordan Yule uh, from The Nation. We have Jason Murdoch from Newsweek and Matthew Galt from Vice News. Um, all did some good reporting recently on this just crazy story, man. So uh, turns out that the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force uh, have been investing in esports teams that use popular online gaming channels like Twitch, uh, which is owned by Amazon, uh, as a recruitment tool. Now, this might come to a surprise to a lot of folks because one, you might not know what Twitch is uh, <laughs> if you're not of a certain age. Um, and two, you might be thinking, well, like, is that even legal? Is that okay? Uh, so yes, it is. And it is happening uh, pretty aggressively. So Twitch, uh, which is, you know, for those who aren't familiar, you might think of it as kind of like YouTube that watches people play video games and talks about what's happening in the video games. Uh, and Twitch boasts that it can reach 80% of teen males in the United States. Um, the minimum age requirement for engaging in Twitch is 13, though I'm not sure what kind of policing exists to make sure that no one younger than 13 engages. And um, on Twitch, uh, people watch members of the military, uh, along with you know millions of other people. But in this case, members of the military play military themed video games such as Call of Duty or Apex Legends and have the opportunity to see and interact with other uh, participants and players in the chat stream. In mid-July, the Army's channel made some news for how it began responding to users who brought up questions about the American military's history of committing war crimes. Um, there were a few incidences of, of participants bringing up 
questions about things like the My Lai Massacre or the Kunduz Hospital airstrike um, who are getting banned uh, from these Twitch channels. Um, now, the practices uh, employed on Twitch by the military um, are part of a system by which recruiters target children in unstable and or disadvantaged situations. So we probably all have you know, seen military recruiting stations around our cities. This is kind of a, a virtual version of that. Um, and you know, the recruiters take advantage of the poor seeking steady income. Uh, folks who are vulnerable, longing for stability and community, and even undocumented folks living in fear because of their citizenship status. Um, and now at a time when all those factors are magnified by a pandemic that has left about half the country out of work and over 30% unable to afford housing payments, the conditions are perhaps even more ripe for recruiters to prey on anxious youth. So the combination of the kind of censorship of critique of the military and military recruiters using these, you know, popular teen hangouts of, of uh, video game esports channels on Twitch has a lot of people talking, raises some concerns for folks about what is happening there. Manuel, what's your take on this? Yeah, this is wild. This is one of those stories where I wish we were back in the original TV studio where we first started because one of our student helpers back then, uh, shout out to Carlos, um, he's a big time gamer on Twitch. Like he, that's what he does. And I would love to get his take on this. And I wonder if he's come across any of this. Uh, this is crazy, but it's not surprising at all. I mean, the idea that military recruiters will be lurking in these video game streaming uh, channels and trying to recruit folks from that. I mean, it kind of makes sense. Like, honestly, if I if I was a recruiter and if I didn't quite care about anything related to morals and ethics when it comes to recruiting folks for the military, I would think to go there because there are a bunch of guys there, just like Twitch says, what, 80 percent they have or they claim to have uh, the ability to reach 80 percent of young males. So there's your target demographic and they're playing video games. And a lot of these video games, many of them on Twitch, especially are ones that glorify or um, have militaristic themes to them and you know why wouldn't you go there to try to uh, get some recruits it's terribly sad because we're we have parents who are out there working or or doing whatever and, and unbeknownst to them their child is playing video games with somebody who is gently trying to condition them over to this uh, army recruitment website or, or wherever so that they can sign up that's really 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 disturbing it's also disturbing that one would think to look at video games and video game players as potential for uh, to be military recruits because of course these video games um, you know they might be fun and all that stuff for those who play them but I mean the real life real war is not that at all and it's you know it's just it's kind of sickening to think that someone might be playing a game that they feel like it's fun and that might end up leading them on the path to real actual military where it's not fun at all and part of me also wonders if this is perhaps compensating for the fact that more and more schools and more and more districts are turning their backs to military recruiters. I feel like growing up in the 90s, having military recruiters at, at your campus was just like a normal thing. And now, you know, more and more teachers that I talk to in, in schools that I learn about, you know, more and more of them are like, no, nah, we don't allow recruiters here. We don't have, I don't let my, I don't let my classes sit there and listen to recruiters. So I, I wonder if this is, you know, compensating for the fact that it's, it's harder to make inroads through the uh, traditional, you know, showing up at a school type of way that, you know, might've been easier back in the day. I don't know, you know, I could be definitely wrong about that. I'm just curious about it but yeah it's really really it's gross to think a parent might be you know whatever taking care of household duties and their kid is playing video games and the parent just has no idea that this recruiter is trying to get the kid to um, go over to this website and put in their info for you know a free xbox controller or whatever and that info is being used to um you know hit them up as as potential recruits that's really sickening to me uh that thought yeah, I'm 100% I'm with you on that. I, I have never been a fan of military recruiting. I find it predatory. It's very clear that they target low-income areas. It's very clear that they target poor black and brown folks. It's very clear that they target immigrants um, and people who are the most marginalized in our society and, um, and take advantage of the fact that we live in such an unfair and unequal society that there are people who feel they have no other option for a stable job to, to escape the violence in their community or whatever it may be, but to go into the military. Now, 
I don't pretend that the military has not been helpful to, you know, to many individuals and uh, that there, you know, there is an other side to that coin. This is my take on the matter. And I, I have never been a fan of, of military recruiting in this way and find it very exploit, uh, exploitative. Um, I will say that, you know, you, you just mentioned this, right? The um, part of what they were doing was also these shady uh, you know, fake promotions, right? So offering, click here for this free Xbox controller that's worth $200. And, you know, actually it wasn't a sweepstakes, right? It was right. just a way to get kids info and then a recruiter will call you, right? And they did several different things like that, doing these fake promotions that actually just get kids placed into a recruitment situation to the point that Twitch actually demanded that the army stop doing that on its, um, on its channel. Right. So they're violating Twitch's terms of service and and I think actually even the law around offering prizes and like conducting a sweepstakes without actually offering those prizes. Right. Um, so certainly they're behaving unethically um, on that level. And uh, and I think in general, uh, this this just it, it tastes to me like exploitation. It tastes to me like. Uh, you know, sort of trying to find vulnerable kids in places where they're ostensibly alone and can be preyed upon and not that different than the kind of behavior that like a child predator uses. Now, I'm not saying the military wow, is sexually wow. abusing kids, but look at the behavior pattern, man. It's like a similar kind of behavior pattern. Let's find you. Let's help you deal yeah. with feeling vulnerable or whatever. And then instead, we're going to take advantage of you. Right. So. I don't like it. Um, I think it's shady, and I'm, I hope you know the the news gets out, and, and we are protecting our kids from what to me feels like a predatory environment. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my my dad had a long career in the military. I've had students who joined the military after high school and have loved it. I've had some who have enlisted and didn't love it. And in, you know, I'm not against the idea in general of sharing information with students about the uh, opportunities of joining the Air Force or Army or whatever. But I am fully against doing it behind parents' backs, for sure. I know when I log into my uh, LMS at school, there's a little like indicator there on whether or not the parent has consented for that student to be contacted by recruiters or something like that. I know that, you know, those, those parents who say no, and almost all of the students that, whose info I look at, like it says no in terms of sharing info with recruiters, I, I'm sure those same parents don't really know that some of those recruiters are also lurking in these online gaming uh, platforms. So that to me is the really unethical part, trying to condition these kids without their parents even knowing. That's the part where it's just like red line, can't do that. That's fully trash. Man, Jeff, yeah. you promised me. You promised me an uplifting story. I'm, I'm pretty no, sure you I promised sure, me No, I sure story. didn't. You asked for one, <laughs> and I told you <laughs> probably not. So <laughs> let the record show. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. So that's it for today's Do Now. Um, and up next, we'll have the seminar with some very dope educators who will talk about, who will share about their academy in Minneapolis, where they do some really dope work with their students and um, and stay connected with the with the community. So that's up next. Stay tuned. Hey there, AOTA family. We are so appreciative of your support for being a listener, a viewer of our show. And we know many of you are looking for ways to help support the show. It's super easy. All you have to do is go to aotashow.com slash support. That's aotashow.com slash support. And right there, you can find ways to contribute on Venmo or on Cash App. We're at at aotashow. Or you can click through to Anchor and you can become a monthly subscriber. So help support your favorite unstandardized take of education that's out there. We really appreciate it. Also on our website, you're going to find a way to buy new AOTA show merch. You can walk the streets of your town repping for the all of the above family with your own t-shirt, with a coffee mug. We got all the exciting stuff. You definitely want to be able to share the good news with everybody out there. So again, go to aotashow.com support. Click on that button to buy yourself some new merch. Thanks, and we'll see you soon. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you with us today. We have two incredible guests here who are going to help us explore, I think, one of the biggest questions that's on everyone's mind, um, not only in education, but generally in society nowadays, um, but really just grappling with this issue of what would it look like to make schools 
anti-racist institutions, right? Institutions that not only serve communities well, but work to intentionally, uh, you know, undermine the negative effects of systemic racism in our society. And who better to help us uh, explore these issues than two amazing educators from the city of Minneapolis, the sort of epicenter of our, our current national and even worldwide, uh, you know, state of unrest against the status quo. So I want to welcome to our show our two guests. We have Ariel Roca and we have Alex Leonard coming to us both from uh, Community Connected Academy at Patrick Henry High School in Minneapolis. Welcome, Ariel. Welcome, Alex. Hey, good hey. to be here. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah, so let me tell you a little bit about our guests. Uh, Alex Leonard and Ariel Roca are educators and co-founders of Community Connected Academy at Patrick Henry High School. That's in North Minneapolis. Alex is a counselor in the academy, integrating social-emotional learning into the everyday curriculum the students experience. And Ariel teaches a college and career class and coordinates personalized internships for CCA students. Now, the Academy is a close-knit community bringing to life the school's mission that provides opportunities for students to learn and grow through meaningful, relevant, real-life learning that contributes to a just and healthy North Minneapolis community. Alex and Ariel, along with their team, work in deep relationship with their students and families to create an Academy that removes barriers to future learning and life opportunities and prepares students for the demands of leadership and justice. So Ariel and Alex, welcome again to All the Above. So excited to have you here. And I do wanna say full, full transparency to our um, All the Above audience. Alex and I have, have known each other since we were about five years old. Um, and I've, I've been plotting on a way to, to get him on the show here for most of the last three years. And, and it finally happened. So, um, you know, Alex, appreciate you, you being with us today and um, helping to make the, the connection so we can also have Ariel with us. Um, and with that, I'm going to hand it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah. So thank you both for, for being with us. I've heard nothing but great things. And no pressure, but we really expect some dopeness today because um, I know you are two really dope educators that are out there in the field. And we have a long-standing tradition on this show of only inviting dope educators to come speak with us. So, um, so yeah, so welcome both to the show. And I guess I want to start with just the fact that y'all are both in the, really at the epicenter of, of this national uprising, of this global uprising, really. I mean, we've seen folks marching for Black Lives all around the world now and all, and it all, you know, at least this, this particular moment all started specifically with that video that we saw coming out of Minneapolis and the protests in Minneapolis and, and all that, all that has transpired since then. So I guess I want to start with just asking, how are you and your, your school community holding up now? Yeah, I think, um, you know, myself and the school community, I think we're, we ended the school year in a bit of survival mode. Um, in all honesty, and just kind of triaging uh, where we could, you know. Um, I live in North Minneapolis, and there was a lot happening over here in our community. Um, and so just trying to figure out how to, how to support students, how to kind of keep students and families um, at the center um, with everything that was going on was, was definitely um, challenging. Um, but I think we we did our best in in terms of responding and and you know but it was a, a lot of survival just kind of getting through it and and trying to support one another as best we could you know we had students out on the front lines um, you know I'd, I'd see them in videos as we were kind of watching things that were unfolding um, and then in North Minneapolis um, dealing with the type of elements that were coming into the community. Um, families, a lot of families were faced with, honestly, some kind of terrorism from folks outside, a lot of intimidation and, and things happening overnight um, oftentimes. So, you know, connecting and expecting students and families to be focused on school at a time like that is a, is a huge ask. And um, so trying to, support them as best we could while also honoring just what's going on and, and respecting that as much as possible. Um, I, th I think personally, we did a great job in, in CCA and as a school community, um, but it is definitely challenging. 
And uh, we also, we have juniors and seniors in our academy. Um, and so honoring uh, our seniors with graduation, tying up loose ends. I know Alex was a big part of making sure that students were, you know, graduation ready. And I think we also wanted to just make sure that um, social emotionally, we had a spaces for students virtually where they could connect with us um, just to talk about what was going on. So we, we also created those spaces, spaces knowing that our families and students were on the front lines while at the same time elevating their voices. So, yeah. Now, I, you know, I happen to follow um, Alex on, on social media, so I've, I've had the privilege of seeing some of the, like, videos that, you know, you guys took of, you know, going around in kind of a caravan to all the students' homes and helping to, you know, make the end of the high school experience special for, for kids in the midst of the, you know, the pandemic and the uprising. Um, which I can only imagine must have been a surreal experience on a lot of levels. Um, but also know that your school is a school that has like a, a real sort of distinct way of being. And I'm wondering, um, and maybe we'll start with you, um, Ariel, if you can tell us a bit about, you know, the Community Connected Academy and kind of what your, your model is, what makes your school special, how is it different from maybe what folks might think of as kind of traditional school? Sure. So I think I think the the most special part about CCA um, and it was actually something we ran two years ago was a portrait of a graduate. So we asked our students, families, and community members to come out to an event and tell us what they wanted education to look like um, for their for their for their children. And so um, from that, we created our mission, vision, and values, and every decision that was made. Um, from then till now has been because of that moment, um, asking our families and students what they wanted. So we created our pillars and belief statements um, out of that event. Um, and out of that was, you know, uh, we integrate SEL really well into the uh, curriculum. Uh, we have an in-house counselor. We wanted to make sure that uh, the caseload for Alex was lower than most counselors in the district where it could be upwards of 250 students per counselor. Uh, and we wanted to integrate that into the curriculum with circles, one-on-ones, making sure that students' voices were heard. Um, we also do interdisciplinary thematic units, which is super dope. We have a great team of educators that um, create projects that are uh, integrating skills. So all of those soft skills, uh, collaboration, critical thinking, creativity, communication, uh, all of those soft skills that are needed for 21st century, you know, jobs and learning and um, in the world now. Um, yeah, we integrate those and then um, they're all interdisciplinary based on themes. So our first unit is always identity. We want to make sure our students know who they are um, and, you know, who their family is, what their passions are. And then, um, and then we, we move on to different themes that are across all four disciplines. So we have conflict, power, and then we obviously didn't finish out the year this year, so we didn't have a, a, a fourth quarter unit. Um, and I think like the, the dopest part about CCA that students love the most is getting out of the building into their internship. So a big piece of CCA is real world learning based on who they wanna be, what profession, where they wanna go. Um, and so we have individualized, personalized internships for students. Um, and a couple of the big places, North News, we have four or five students that write for a local newspaper. Um, they get to choose what they want to write about. They learn the basics of journalism and then are published. And so we have a couple of articles that are written by CCAers at North News. We have Juxtaposition, one of our um, one of our students, uh, they created Dem Benches, which is they learned how to make outdoor furniture and learn the principles of design and then created benches, which are super cool. So there's just like based on students' passions and interests, um, they get to choose an internship of their choice. Uh, and we integrate all of those skills and content into those internships. So it's super, super cool. Yeah. So those are some of the pillars of our of our program that I think make us unique. I think I would I would I would add that I think when it comes to, you know, because we're specifically focused on project based learning and that is something that doesn't 
typically happen with the demographic of students that we're working with. Our school is 50% uh, African-American and probably 35% Asian. And typically what we see is project-based learning is happening in kind of more in white communities and more affluent white communities. Um, so for us, that's another, and we're in a public school setting also, and it doesn't always happen in public schools. So I think a lot of those things distinguish with what we're doing, not only in the public school setting, but also even what's happening nationally. We're doing some things that don't, uh, that aren't typically trending nationally either. Dope, dope. So this summer, there's probably the uh, official word in education, which is quote unquote anti-racist. That is becoming a buzzword and you know maybe that's a good thing that more folks are talking about it but then of course when certain ideas and concepts become buzzworthy then they get misused quite a bit and with so much going on between the pandemic and uprising for for racial justice and just the economic uncertainty that that we might be facing what does anti-racist what does an anti-racist school actually look like? Like if that's going to be our focus and that that's what a lot of folks are calling for in the education system right now, um, what do y'all think that actually looks like? And what do you think needs to happen in order for us to really achieve an anti-racist school? Yeah, so I think in order, that's a great question. It's a difficult question. I think I responded back to Jeff earlier this week, like, man. <laughs> we need a quick answer, man. People, they just want to knock this out real fast, man. Just tell them how to be anti-racist Yeah, man, we need, we need the checklist that we can then just check off and make sure we're done before the year starts, you know? <laughs> um, so I'm a, but I'm going to give my, my, my stab at it. Um, I think... I think in order for schools to be anti-racist, there's a lot of steps that need to be taken and they need to be taken at every single level of education. And so that would be from the classroom, curriculum, teacher training and preparation and teacher evaluation on up to administration districts and state departments of education and policy. Like you're not going to be able to just do this on an individual level on an individual school level. There are some steps that you can take, but in order to really create the kind of systemic change that I think is being called for, it has to really happen on every single level of education. And um, I think the biggest piece that the work would need to include is honestly decentering whiteness. And so in our community, what that looks like um, may be different from what that looks like in other communities. Um, other communities may need to focus on a broader, I think everyone needs to focus on a, a broader narrative, a multiple narrative that they're teaching from. Um, I think we need, and in order for that to happen, I also think we need a lot more autonomy. Um, schools need the autonomy to do some of these things. And that's how you start to see this connection between policy and state and all of these things, right? Um, and I think everyone's, it's, it's gonna take a lot of work to get everybody on the same page. Um, but I think some of it starts from communities. So in our community specifically, um, getting back to how we functioned as CCA and going out into the community and hearing what the needs are, that's a piece of it. What does the community need? What does the community want to see? Um, and let me see, uh, schools being reflective of the demographics of, of their, uh, the teacher demographics, being reflective of the school's demographics of students, I think is important. I think evaluating teachers from an equity lens, that's something that needs to be included. Uh, equity, cultural competency, that's something that needs to happen. Um, I think students and families having some sort of say over these evaluations, also having having a way to hold uh, schools and school systems and, and teachers accountable is important. And then at the risk of, of ruffling some feathers, um, I think looking at, um, taking a look at, a hard look at teachers unions and what role do teacher unions play. Um, we really need, I'm pro-union, but the union needs to not be an impediment towards this work also. And so that decentering whiteness work needs to be done within teachers unions um, as well. And we need to do a better job at not protecting bad teachers, right? We're here in the epicenter where we're talking about defunding police and addressing and getting rid of bad Apple cops. We need to be doing the same thing with bad Apple teachers. And so that autonomy that needs to be created and, and allowing leaders to, of schools and districts to do what they need to do in terms of clearing out some of these 
teachers that are an impediment to to progress. Um, people need to be freed up to be able to have that that kind of power. I'll let Ari speak a little bit to uh, curriculum because that's another piece as well. But that's that's kind of my take on things. Yeah, and just to build off of what Alex just said, in addition to schools addressing all the elements within the system of education, I think schools need to be responsive to systems that also intersect with education and affect our students and families. For example, and I'm gonna give you an example of a student that we had. Um, so we know that a lot of the essential workers were Latinos and black students and families across the country. Um, and that's obviously a product of a racist system. And so Minneapolis had the opportunity to alleviate that undue harm and stress on families by potentially providing flexibility or, you know, getting rid of some of the undue stress. And, I, and here's a concrete example, um, credit recovery, online credit recovery uh, and makeup. Uh, the district could have, you know, created flexibility for our seniors and they didn't. And students that were essential workers ended up failing online credit recovery, not graduating and needing to finish during summer school, which is just like whack. It's like, it's crazy. And so it's not just with, within education. We have to also be responsive to systems outside of our, uh, uh, not up, out of our control, but outside of the realm of education, what we traditionally think of education um, to be truly anti-racist, I think. So, um, so that was just building off of what Alex said. But in addition, I'm, you know, a mass overhaul of the curriculum. We were talking about this yesterday. Um, the standards, I mean, I'm just like, we just, some of the standards got, just have to go. Um, and I think at least, at the very least, redefining them, redefining um, what's important to the community, what skills are important. Um, it's been the same old, same old in Minneapolis for a really long time and, and across the country. And so we just, we really need to look at the curriculum, switch it up to be more relevant, to have and decenter whiteness. Like I think we, we have to do that within our curriculum as well um, and create multiple narratives like, like, uh, uh, like Alex said. I mean, I think typically in curriculum we have like, one story that defines a whole group of people. Um, so we really do have to introduce multiple narratives and voices into the curriculum. Um, yeah, so, and I guess, uh, you know, I'll comment on, you know, for our context a profile of a graduate going out into the community asking, you know, what students and families want was important in our context. But I think that is very different for a school maybe in YZ where it's a school that serves white families and white students, I don't think you necessarily can go out in the community and ask, you know, what do you think is best for children? Because I think that you're going to create the same old, same old, right? With whiteness at the center and a lot of the white, like the violent white culture that persists in our country. And so you know, I was brainstorming with Alex and, and his wife yesterday about, you know, um, decentering whiteness, redefining what it means to be white, uh, taking on a liberation curriculum to include counter narratives. I mean, all of this work needs to happen, not just only in our school, but also in predominantly white schools that serve white families and white students. Um, so. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate both of your, of your words there and the, you know, the immense nature of, you know, of that challenge. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, Alex, as you were talking about some of the, you know, some of the issues of we're very comfortable at this point, I think, in our society naming like, well, that's a that's a racist cop. Right. Like that's a that's a, quote, bad apple. And that person should be fired. Right. Um, and yet uh, just the other day, um, Professor uh, Tyrone Howard from UCLA uh, published a piece out here in California um, in a in a local education publication, essentially saying what you're saying, right? That like we can ask kids in communities, you know, who are the racist teachers, right? <laughs> and they could tell us. And yet, the system not only doesn't do anything to address um, that issue, but we have pretty profound structures in place to preserve, uh, you know, that that person's ability to con continue to practice, right? And that's just the most, you know, sort of flagrant um, kind of example, right? Let alone all the things that I think are more, um, you know, uh, kind of institutionalized the way that you're naming Ariel about, you know, just what's baked into the curriculum and what, you know, what are um, sort of 
white gaze is on the, on the, the whole enterprise of, of education. Um, and, and that presents just such, a, such an immense challenge. I'm wondering, you know, as folks who are part of a small community, right, within a school community, um, if maybe there's some things you could share about some of the ways you have actually gone about trying to decenter whiteness, some of the ways you've gone about trying to, you know, put uh, maybe a different construction of what's important in front of the staff and the students in your school. Yeah, I think for us, it started with hiring, right? Um, mm -hmm. So we have, we have seven staff members in our program, I think, and four, five are staff of color, you know? And so then that was intentional, right? We have to be intentional about what we're doing, right? We are intentional as we recruit students. We want our program to be reflective of the demographics of the building. So that means, you know, initially we weren't set up to, to serve special ed students, right? Um, our, so our first, our first group, we really didn't have more than one or two students. Now that we're fully insulated, you know, we're, we're picking up and looking at how to, how to better serve our SPED and our EL students. But we want our demographics to be reflective uh, uh, on a student basis also, right? Um, and it just requires a level of intentionality, right? You have to be intentional about targeting and, and, and hiring and the whole process. You really have to be um, intentional within that process. Mm -hmm. on, the, on the curriculum level, I mean, we, we spoke to what we feel strongly about. Students need uh, uh, identity is big, right? How they see themselves. That's not something that typically gets addressed in the classroom. Um, power, having these conversations and how does, how do you address power through science and math, right? Like, so we're, we're taking on these things to uh, largely to, to demonstrate a lot of what we've done in creating this program is to demonstrate and model for other schools and teachers in our building that this can be done, right? It requires work and a lot of intentionality, but it's not impossible. And we have to stop acting as if it's impossible. You know, where there's a will, there's a way, but we have to question, <laughs> are you willing, <laughs> right? Is this a skill thing or a will thing? And it's cool. If you don't have the skill, great, we can work on that. But if it's a will thing, now we're having a different conversation, right? We all have to have the desire to see this happen, right? But we can, we're willing to work with anybody if it's simply a skill thing, but the will thing, that's different. That's a personal thing. And we're, we're trying to do our part to demonstrate that this is possible and hopefully we inspire other folks in the building. And I think we have, you know, one thing, even from, from you all, we used, uh, we used Manny's, uh, piece on passing students, <laughs> you know, we, we yeah, passed team all A's in the building. <laughs> yeah. We did that in our program, right? <laughs> That's what we wanted. We did that anyway, in our program and we used that we to try to push the rest of the building for the same thing. And our principal tried to push it on district level and it only got as far as credit, no credit, but we feel like that's not enough, right? It's not enough to, why should we do pass fails? <laughs> you know, give everybody A's, assume that everyone's doing their absolute best in this, in this situation. So, um, you know, so that's a little bit of what it looks like. I mean, th these are difficult conversations and, and there's probably more we can say and aren't exactly hitting on, but that's, those are a few of the things that we're attempting to do um, mm -hmm. within our space and within our locus of control. And that's I all great. Think, I mean, yeah. oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. You go, you go, uh, you go. You go. I was just gonna say that I also think that um, we, and you know, people say this, they, they do it all the time, but I do think that we listen to students every quarter and we do a survey, we listen, we have a focus group and um, we take their feedback and we pivot. We're responsive to what our students want, what's working for them, what what isn't working. And we literally have shifted a ton of like, a, a, a ton of systems, policies, procedures based on what our students have told us about how they learn best. That's all I was gonna say. All right, so I appreciate all that y'all have shared. And you know, if I take a look around at the the PD offerings this summer that I keep seeing pop up here and there, it looks like a lot of folks are looking for a sort of like quick fixes to become anti-racist and to decenter de whiteness. And what y'all have laid out really is this the the fact that this is a really big comprehensive undertaking 
that um, schools and school systems need to embark on if they are really about this work and if the will is there, as you said. But we have a lot of folks who are listening to the show who are district leaders and who are administrators of, of various levels and, and they're wondering how can they get started in trying to develop a learning community um, in, a, in a, a school similar to what you all have been working on. So what what would you say to district leaders and, and administrators about trying to create the sort of learning environments that, that y'all are part of? You want me to start or you want to start, Ari? Right. You can start, Alex, if you want. Um, I guess I would say you have to, it starts with being just a strong leader. Um, you know, and I think we've seen a dearth of that in, in education. So who's willing to go out and just be the courageous voice that is calling for these changes and, and modeling these changes? And I, I think we're fortunate enough to be in a situation where I've been under two principles that were very forward thinking and, and had no problem um, being courageous and, and stepping out. So I think it starts again with that will and, and those leaders who really want to foster and create and take on those courageous conversations and, and, and blaze, blaze a trail, right? You have to be willing to be that, that kind of leader and, and, and person. Um, we got some other notes here around redefining rigor, right? We hear a lot about rigor. <laughs> um, what, what does that really mean? <laughs> you know, what does it mean? And how do we, how do we redefine that, right? We would, we would say that everything that we're doing is probably more rigorous than what's typically viewed as rigorous because we're focusing on building soft skills and, and additional skills that go alongside of these things. So being able to redefine those things. Um, and I'll, the last thing I'll say, and then I'll let Ari speak, is I think really in this moment, freeing up the innovators within your buildings and in your spaces and really protecting them give them no one knows how to do what we're doing no one's been taught how to do this distance learning thing students definitely aren't prepared to learn that way there let the innovators and the people the creatives the people who want to try some new things let them try it <laughs> you know mm -hmm. and protect them as they're trying it right because once you start trying to do some of those things uh, you can end up with a target on your back. So how are you going to protect those people and give them that space to to be creatives? And if some of those things start to pick up and, and, and show that they can be uh, yield positive results, um, you know, really just protecting that and trying to, to push that f further. But it starts by giving people that space to do that, because what we're doing is not working right now. Um, whether we're talking distance learning or or currently, right? Particularly where we're at, right? The achievement gap is one of the highest in the country here in Minnesota. And so we know that what we're doing is failing. Who's going to be courageous enough to try something different? Even if it doesn't work, that's okay. And we're fortunate enough to be working with uh, administrators and a principal who's all in on that. It's fine if it doesn't work. What we're doing is not working. So let's try something different. And if it doesn't work, cool, you know, but at least we tried. You know, and I think so leaders and districts need to be willing to step out on that limb and say, we're going to give it a shot. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Art. Yeah. And I think, um, man, that that rigor question has been one of the hardest narratives to combat with a, like a the teaching force, the educator force. CCA is not rigorous enough. Like, what are they doing in there? It's not because it's not traditional and we're evaluating skills and, um, you know, they're thinking that it's not rigorous enough. So we had to explicitly redefine what rigor was in our context. And I think that districts doing that would be super helpful when you're trying to overhaul the curriculum. You have to know what your definition of rigor is. Um, but one of, uh, you know, I think uh, an impediment to innovation, especially in spaces like ours, when we want to get students out of the building, man, seat time is such a hard, like we have very strict, I don't know if this is true for all districts or all states. It's just in, in Minnesota, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a state rule. Seat time is such an impediment to getting students out of the building and, you know, community experts, people in our community to give credit or to align projects that are, you know, in the field. So for instance, if a student goes out to North News it's almost impossible to get that student credit for English in Minneapolis public schools. And so seat time, if, if you're a district person, advocate for 
you know, seat, seat time changes. Um, so it's not as restrictive um, for uh, giving credit for students who are doing dope stuff in our community with dope people in our community. Um, yeah, so that's that's one of that's one of the main things I think like for for districts and then everything that Alex said, uh, freeing up innovators and leaders in your building. I feel like districts can be really restrictive and prescriptive, and so um, creating leaders in your building to share their learning um, and their innovation is super helpful too because I I don't necessarily think that educators we don't look at educators as leaders necessarily as a system, and so I think. Thinking about our educators as leaders um, is important to make yeah. change. Allowing for some more teacher-powered uh, spaces. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I would say overall, expanding our concept of education, right? Like we have this very narrow view that's focused on academics, right? Yeah. And I, I, I've always taken issue with that term academics because education to me is broad. Education can happen anywhere. And so... Yeah. You know, if we got kids doing internships, like what they're doing is most likely aligned to some standard. Allow us to utilize that standard to to give them credit for what it is that they're doing. Education's always happening, right? And we have to be able to. So I just wanted to reiterate that we have to be able to uh, relax some of those restrictions that allow us to um, to provide for that credit. And we understand what underlies that, right? It's a it's an attempt to continue to protect the profession of teaching, which I yeah. understand. Um, but we have to be aware of where we're simply uh, maintaining the status quo and propping up the same old, same old, right? And so, yeah. you know, so we have to be able to, to, to address that as well. People that don't wanna move forward need to feel uncomfortable. They, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like we were talking about this yesterday and I think principals have a lot of power in the system. I think they have the most power in the system to affect change. And I think that principals need to make people that don't want to move forward super uncomfortable with how they're behaving to, to whatever it may be, um, to protect their fragility, to protect the status quo. Um, so however you can make those people feel uncomfortable is is the ideal um, to, to create space because there are people in our school that, you know, don't agree with what we're doing and don't agree with, with the, you know, um, necessarily like our philosophy of teaching, you know, and I, and I think that we have equity at the center of our, of our school and our students and families at the center. And those, those haters need to be, you know, I don't know. They need to be made pretty uncomfortable. So and that's we part need of the names. Perspective. Call them out. We need names. <laughs> <laughs> Not today. <laughs> yes. Next next time you're on the show, we'll we'll have that conversation. Yes. Uh, wow. Well, um, Ariel Roca, Alex Leonard, thank you both uh, for being with us today. I think yeah. uh, you know. I'm sure I'm speaking for Manuel. It feels like we we could have this conversation for hours and hours. And yeah. I think maybe at some point it'd be great to to have you back. Maybe as we get further into next school year and you know and have a little more perspective on kind of how things are going or not going uh and you know where the where the momentum is around you know making our profession one that is one that is anti-racist and the institution of school mm -hmm. one that is anti-racist but really appreciate your thoughts today i think uh you know not only just philosophically hearing your thoughts but also hearing on the ground what's happening, you know, in the epicenter of, of this national movement um, around racial justice is just incredibly powerful. Um, if folks are interested in learning more about uh, Community Connected Academy at Patrick Henry High School in Minneapolis um, and just understanding more about your model or supporting your school, um, where, where can they go to, uh, to connect? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you could Google Community Connected Academy at Henry High School, and there'll be a link there to connect to our website. And you can always feel free to connect with Alex and I via email. Um, it'll be on the website, I think. Um, and so feel free to reach out. We're always looking for collaborators, innovators, um, people to come visit. So reach out. This is our logo. If you ever see this, Community Connected Academy. Dope. Students did this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I had to yes. have the crown to get. Yeah. Student, student design, student printed. They printed the shirts too. Nice. So. <laughs> Maybe we can get you some. Yeah, that's a good idea. We'll hook you up. 
<laughs> Hell yeah. Nice. <laughs> we'll drop those links under this episode for anybody watching or anybody listening. Um, our website will have all those links too. If you don't want to um, do the Googles, we'll, we'll provide those links for you. Awesome. All right. Thank well, thanks again for, for joining us, um, Alex and Ariel. Uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. And uh, folks, next up is today's Class Dismissed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, we, we have reached that part of the episode where we give shout outs to folks doing great work out there in the world of education. For today's class dismissed, Jeff, what do we have? Well, man, well, we have, uh, a, you know, a heartfelt story, um, one that I think has uh, struck a nerve, I think, for, for a lot of educators across the country. And um, in all these debates taking place this summer about, you know, should we reopen physical schools? Should we... Uh, you know, stay in a virtual mode has really been a sobering story uh, to a lot of educators. And um, this story comes to us from the Phoenix area and involves the passing of a teacher, um, Kimberly Chavez Lopez Bird, um, who taught in the Hayden Winkleman Unified School District, which is uh, just outside of the Phoenix area. She was a teacher there for 38 years, uh, elementary school teacher. Um, who was teaching summer school this year. Um, and summer school was virtual for the students, but staff was reporting to the school campus and she shared a classroom with uh, two other teachers. All three of those teachers wound up testing positive for coronavirus. Um, and unfortunately, uh, Kimberly um, became ill um, pretty quickly, wound up going on a ventilator and never came off the ventilator, passed away in late June. Um, she did have asthma and some other underlying health conditions, um, but was reported to have been someone who was very, you know, sort of uh, religious about following CDC guidelines and sanitizing and wearing a mask and social distancing, all of that. Um, so this is this is just a tough story, Manuel, because we are, um, you know, educators are not immune uh, to this virus. And even in, you know, certainly what could be thought of as a much more ideal situation than having a classroom full of students. Right. Um, even in this situation, just a few adults being able to be six feet apart in a shared space. Um, we see the, the spread of the virus, um, you know, with folks who are following the rules. So. Uh, this is this is a tough one. We definitely send our condolences out to Kimberly's family, to the staff at her school and in her district. And, uh, you know, what what a loss. 38 years of service to the kids and, and the community there. Yeah, man. Yeah. 38 years. She should have been able to retire and live out her retirement and enjoy. And you just think about how many young folks she must have interacted with across those 38 years. And you think of all the other educators out there who, who we've lost during this pandemic. I remember coming across uh, something um, on Twitter that listed out all the educators in New York City who had passed during the uh, epidemic. And it was just a, a really long list. We're losing a lot, of, a lot of folks. And here's a situation where it was just three adults in a room following the procedures and still couldn't, couldn't contain the thing and keep it out. So, so, so sad, such a tragic loss. Condolences to her and her family and all the other families out there who have lost loved ones during this during this very difficult time. All right, folks, that about does it for this episode of All of the Above. And um, we'll catch you next week with a uh, passing period. All right, stay safe out there. See you.